Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, a look ahead to the Surface Navy Association's annual symposium that starts tomorrow and runs through Thursday afternoon, where our coverage is sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries and Raytheon Technologies. But first, Joining us today is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners to help us start off the week uh, with, uh, as usual, his customary thoughtful note uh, on things to think about over the course of the week, as well as events that we should be paying attention to. Byron, thanks very much for joining us. Happy Monday, Vago. Uh, happy Monday to you uh, and, and welcome back. Uh, and before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautics Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, and uh, this and over the coming weeks, we are going to be covering the Surface Navy Association's annual symposium in Northern Virginia, where our coverage will be sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries and Raytheon Technologies. Tune in to our Cavus ship podcast hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, for a daily deep dive into the show with gavel-to-gavel coverage. Uh, Don't miss it, and certainly don't miss our coverage as well. Uh, Byron, uh, obviously, uh, the United States and Russia are talking in uh, Geneva. NATO, The NATO-Russia Council will convene on the 12th. Obviously, all eyes are on whether Russia uh, is going to invade Ukraine and what the international community can do to either stop that uh, from from happening or not, you you put the chances of armed conflict at forty percent. Uh, you've been gaming and and putting a percentage on this, but more broadly, what do you think this all means for defense uh, sentiment, um, especially in the wake of today's meeting with Wendy Sherman and her Russian counterpart in Geneva? Well, look, Vago, I think going into these meetings, you know, the expectations are pretty low that you're going to get a an agreement that's going to satisfy all the Russian demands, which really are are pretty <laughs> pretty aggressive in many ways. I'm not expecting a breakthrough from the, these discussions this week. And I think what's interesting is you are starting to see some of the defense stocks move. Now, there's always rotation that goes on in the market, and there are 20 other different factors that probably, um, probably you know, one could, could weigh here. But, you know, I think it's starting to dawn on people that, you know, these talks are not going to lead to some kind of immediate breakthrough and that maybe there is some hedging that should go on here just in case this, this turns out to be worse than expected. The events last week in Kazakhstan, I think probably temporarily may have created a sense that Russia had a brand new problem <clears throat> on one of its flanks, and that might siphon off some of the forces that had been uh, mustered in and around Ukraine. Um, but that seems to have been put to bed, and I think there are probably some more interesting uh, discussions, perspectives on, you know, what exactly happened in Kazakhstan last week and, and how will that bear on Russia's overall uh, position and influence in the world. But, but I think one takeaway is, you know, this was not the beginning of some kind of Arab Spring-like result in Kazakhstan that was going to siphon off a lot of the Russian military power that had been, uh, again, arrayed against, against Ukraine. So I'm... And, and I, I put the 40% odds. I should point out that that's just a single that I, I'm looking for uh, some 
something larger than what happened in 2014, 2015 that can involve multiple battalion tactical groups and probably more importantly, Russian air and missile power against Ukraine. I, I, I think there are a whole range of scenarios one could walk through in terms of what an actual conflict could look like. Um, but as I said, I, I, I'm just not expecting anything out of Vienna, Brussels or Geneva this week that will uh, put this whole thing to rest. Let me uh, take you to your expectations at Surface Navy Association, obviously uh, one of the great events uh, of the year. Uh, What do you expect uh, to hear from uh, the leadership of the United States Navy, uh, especially surface forces and the industry that supports it? What are you what are you looking forward to? Because you're going to be participating this year remotely. Uh, The event is being held uh, live, but there are uh, folks who do have concerns about Omicron. And so there are some folks who are going to be staying away and doing what you're doing, which is tuning into their very, very robust online coverage. Yeah, which again is always second best. Uh, I really would rather be there in person, but you know, it's probably not the overall messaging that I'm, I'm most interested in. It's really what's going on with some of the individual programs. Uh, I'll be curious about an update on the Constellation class, how that frigate program is, is playing out. Um, obviously unmanned and how that's fitting in the Navy plans and visions. And if there's any commentary about how some of the actual, what, are, what is the Navy learning from its exercises with unmanned systems? The whole question of amphibs uh, going forward, you know, size, shape, um, you know, the, the Marine vision for a more distributed uh, amphibious force, I think is, is going to be a critical issue to watch. Um, anything the Navy says about plans for future combi- combatants, particularly a, a new larger vessel than DDG-51 is going to be of interest. And finally, and I know this sometimes gets swept aside, but the whole question about maintenance um, you know, is the service really getting its, its arms around this problem? You know, are you really able to see more availability and, and, a, and a better work through? And, and I'll finally say this doesn't just pertain to the surface Navy, but whatever can be said and, and uh, illuminated about uh, the Navy organic base at shipyards and, and really the large amounts of money that are going to be needed to modernize those. Are there other approaches, public-private partnerships, for example, that can be used to address uh, what really are some very antiquated facilities in that organic base? Um, let me uh, take you to uh, the uh, broader economy and its implications for uh, defense. Um, we uh, at last week had the Bank of America uh, conference. Your former colleague, Ron Epstein, uh, and I uh, uh, moderate uh, that. Uh, Ron is kind enough to host it. And we heard from Todd Harrison of the Center for Strategic and International Studies and Mackenzie Eaglin of the American Enterprise Institute. And they focused on that $5 billion, that in the inflation impact on the department is about $5 billion uh, a month, uh, give or take, right? I mean, the price of everything is is going up. I want to try to get to the, 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 the T-bill issue in a minute. How serious a problem do you think inflation is for the department? And what does it potentially mean for the budget, right? We have $740 billion. That's good news. But if you have $60 billion uh, in, in reduced buying power, whether it's because of automatic uh, cost of living adjustments or housing adjustments uh, being part of it, but then the cost of labor and materials that can get carried on to the customer. What, did, what does that mean uh, ultimately, do you think? Because we also understand that it's inflation adjustments and inflation, inflation costs that are slowing down the administration's effort to submit a budget. Uh, before and I think you know whatever it is the point is you know you're probably going to see a seven percent or more inflation 
number, a CPI number out this week. At least that's that's kind of the consensus here. Um, you know, I think that that may be some of the peak. There was a chart that I put in the report that, uh, you know, people think this is really all a function of, you know, build back better and uh, the <clears throat> Infrastructure and Investment Jobs Act, you know, no. Um, you know, you can look at federal outlays as a percent of GDP. They really peaked in 2020 and 2021. So I think you're still seeing the tail of that. <clears throat> and obviously inflation is also a, a global factor. It's not just something, you know, that's limited to the United States. Um, higher energy prices have been a factor and, and the supply chain disruptions that we've been seeing as a result of the pandemic is another factor. Will it moderate from 7%? I, I believe so. Um, is it going to place pressure on military personnel and operations and the maintenance accounts? Absolutely. Um, so the question is, you know, how much more is going to be added? Now, the, the flip of all this inflation stuff, Vago, is, you know, people should be seeing um, if wages start to rise as a result of inflation, and that has been a factor in the past, you know, the federal government should be seeing higher tax revenues as a result of this. So, um, you know, don't, don't just focus on the cost side of this. The ability to handle higher inflation is something that people ought to be keeping in mind too. Um, but I'd go back, you know, you actually had an interview um, back after the Reagan Defense Forum or maybe during the Reagan Defense Forum with Mike Petters at Huntington Ingalls, who, you know, pretty much said they, they really weren't that worried about it uh, because they have long-term contracts for a lot of the, the material that they buy. So I think it's going to be very unimportant uneven impact if you look across the appropriations categories um, within the Department of Defense. And obviously, they're going to have to be some adjustments. I don't dispute um, Todd's or McKenzie's work, but you know how that gets distributed across the appropriations categories, I think, is the more interesting question. Byron, let me let me take you to Treasury outlays uh, on the 12th. Uh, the, the December outlay figure is going to be out. Any change in your expectations on that? Um, no, I mean, I still think, you know, flat to slightly up. I think, you know, that'll be another, really what that does, it's important for analysts and investors in a round at December quarter um, outlays. And so, you know, it, it's kind of a, a pre, a, an early look at how uh, companies might be reporting their December quarter results. And I think, as you know, you know, October, when these companies reported, it was not good. Um, a lot of a lot of companies missed expectations or had lower long-term guidance. So I'm still thinking kind of flat to maybe slightly up. Um, I think that's kind of baked in expectations here, but um, these numbers are a little squirrely. You have to remember, you know, DOD is working under a CR uh, for the first three months of its fiscal year. So don't don't look for anything big or surprising. I'm certainly not, not anticipating a, a significant negative number for investment or O&M. Um, speaking about uh, Treasury, uh, that uh, brings me to T-bills. Uh, uh, BlackRock every year puts their 10 surprises of the year out there. Number three concern that Byron and Joe identified uh, is uh, the 10-year T-bill rate jumping uh, this year to 2.7 from 1.7%. That's that's four years earlier than OMB projection. And there are some folks on the street who worry that we could get to 5% on that. What does what all of this mean, especially for uh, the defense and aerospace sector? Well, I think the interesting point 
you know, I've, I've long felt, Vago, that it's not the federal debt that matters. It's the interest on that debt that really, that, that's going to be the, the driver in, you know, federal mandatory and discretionary outlays is the interest paid on uh, federal debt is a mandatory expense. You can't get around that. So if rates really start to move significantly higher, you know, you can start to play with math on this. Um, it, it's an imprecise exercise, but you know, you could see another, for that kind of move, it could add another hundred billion dollars um, to interest outlay uh, projections OMB had uh, this year uh, for, for 2022, 2023. Um, we're back to the question, you know, eventually OMB and frankly, Congressional Budget Office do show <clears throat> rates rising to that 2.7% range. Um, so uh, I think it's kind of a timing issue to some degree, but I, I don't want to dismiss it. I, I really do worry more about interest on federal debt than the magnitude of federal debt, because uh, ultimately that's going to be what's, what's going to coming out of, uh, out of the budget. And, you know, finding another $100 billion or $150 billion, whatever the number is, in the federal budget, that's also going to see these inflationary pressures um, that could that could put some more stress and strain on the DOD top line. Let me uh, take you to uh, the week. Obviously, it's a very, very busy week. Uh, folks really getting into stride. Uh, talk to us aside from Surface Navy Association. Uh, what is uh, what what should our audience be paying attention to this week? Well, there are a couple of events, um, you know, Center for Strategic and uh, International Studies is doing a couple of events on uh, precision weapons. Uh, the, the, the head of transcom is going to be speaking. Um, I've got my eye on those two. Uh, I didn't listen to my note because I frankly uh, just found out about it this morning, but I guess um, there's an event on MRAP uh, that George Mason University is holding and kind of how that was marketed and what lessons there might be for DOD acquisition policy. Uh, Jim Hassock wrote an excellent book on that process. And this is kind of, it looks like an event that's working around Jim's book on the MRAP program. So that's a Thursday event. Um, And as I said, I think right now, you know, for this week, there are some other uh, events on geopolitics, on what happened in Kazakhstan, uh, you know, but I'll I'll really be paying attention to kind of this tone and tenor of Russia versus US and NATO and, and what's really going on with Ukraine. Um, And one of the more interesting events, not that I really expect we're going to learn a lot from it, but on the 12th, the House Appropriations Committee is holding a hearing on the impact of continuing resolutions. And uh, SecDef Austin is going to be speaking. So, you know, I I, kind of look at this more as a messaging hearing, uh, you know, as you talked about on your Friday show, you know, who doesn't know that uh, that CRs are bad for defense? Is it is it? an effort to kind of get some leverage to get Congress to move, not just on defense appropriations, but non-defense appropriations. That's kind of the way I look at this hearing. Um, let me uh, just uh, pull on that uh, string uh, bef- before we go at the risk of uh, prolonging the program. How How is it that anybody after 10 years of this and how many private meetings and how many public hearings and how many events, every single interview I've ever done in the past decade has had somebody senior explaining the negative implications of a CR. How is it that we are having this unless people just, the people who matter just don't give a crap? Um, I think it's more complicated than that. I think it's the fact that defense takes place 
in in the context of an entire federal budget. And so for better or for worse, <clears throat> defense is is leverage. And it's it's a tool that's used to try and get uh, other non-defense and mandatory programs through. Um, I absolutely agree, you know, I wish someone would really detail exactly what all the costs of this have been and, and these continuing resolutions have been on the military. The GAO had done a, I believe it was GAO had done a report that found, you know, the DOD kind of got acclimated to the these, at least in the first three months of, of any new fiscal year. The problem I think you're looking at right now is <clears throat> given the timing of the president's State of the Union address and when, you know, your earlier observation about how the administration is grappling with uh, the FY23 budget, um, you know, you're, you're more likely to see a continuing resolution extend through March or April. I'm still of the mind that, you know, as much as Congress um, <laughs> uses continuing resolutions uh, more than they should, they're not going to be, they're not going to leap off a tall building and, and, uh, settle for full year continuing resolutions because I, I think at some point you know going into a midterm election and um, and really seeing the damage that full year CR could do to the national security is something that uh, that should be an eye opener for a lot of people in the House and Senate. Uh, I, I, I certainly uh, hope so. Byron, thanks very much. Thanks also for listening uh, to our conversation with Mike. It's always an honor and pleasure uh, talking to him. Uh, he really, uh, really is a very, very talented uh, executive and leader, and it's always a pleasure having him on the program. Absolutely. And a word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All Domain Command and Control. And joining me now is our producer, Chris Cervello, a retired United States Navy commander and former public affairs officer who is one of the co-founders of the Provision Advisors uh, PR firm. He is also the co-host of uh, our Cavus Ships podcast, along with our contributing editor, Christopher P. Cavus, who is one of the world's leading writers on all matters naval. Chris, thanks very much for joining us. Hey, Bago, thanks for having me. Uh, an absolute pleasure. You guys are going to be doing gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage uh, right there in uh, sunny uh, Crystal City, uh, given the Surface Navy Association is convening uh, this year uh, in uh, person uh, after being uh, remote last year. What are some of the big themes and trends, uh, Chris, uh, you uh, expect to hear from uh, senior leadership? Obviously, the Chief of Naval Operations, Mike Gilday, is going to be talking. Uh, Vice Admiral Kitchener, uh, the Chief of Naval Surface Warfare, the Commander of Naval Surface uh, Forces uh, is going to be uh, speaking as well. What, are, what do you expect to hear from leadership? Well, I think we'll hear um, a lot of sort of the traditional messaging um, that you get at these types of conferences. Um, I'm, I'm looking at the agenda and just kind of I'll, I'll tick off some of the things that I expect. You, you know, um, as you mentioned, Vice Admiral Kitchener gives his status of the force really as the kickoff of the conference uh, on Tuesday afternoon. Um, he's been in the job about six months and he'll talk about, you know, what he and uh, his uh, deputy, uh, who is the surf land, uh, what they view as kind of the key themes for the surface force. You'll hear about manning, training, equipping, you'll hear about platforms, um, and you'll hear his view on where he wants to go. This tends to be sort of the big morale message for the entire surface force. Uh, when I was the PAO at Surf 4, um, I worked for Vice Admiral DC Curtis, and we spent months 
uh, leading up to uh, the conference, thinking about and coming up with different uh, versions of the types of remarks that the the boss wanted to give. And my guess is is that. Um, that, you know, a lot of thought has gone into this. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And I know that uh, Chris is as well. Um, after that, you'll hear from the uh, resource sponsors, the N96 and the N98 will kind of talk about their view from a budgeting uh, standpoint and, you know, what they expect to see kind of big picture in, in the budget over the next couple of years as a way of enacting uh, the Surf Wars vision. And then, as you mentioned, um, the day wraps up with Admiral Mike Gilday. I don't think we'll hear too much new from the CNO. I think this is um, one, because he's a surface warfare officer, he, he tends to really enjoy these things personally. Uh, he was there two years ago and, you know, donned his SWO uh, leather jacket and, you know, seemed to be in great spirits as he talked about the the Navy. Um, I, I expect you'll, you'll hear a lot of his, um, you know, same messaging, uh, but it'll be good for the group to, to see him and hear from him and, and, and ask questions. You know, having been there at the audience, I, I knew how proud uh, the CNO was to yeah. get actually the first black jacket right uh, to, to specify uh, the new garment uh, for uh, the surface force, trying to underscore a little bit of that uh, esprit de corps, uh, obviously, that historically has been uh, uh, reserved for aviators, right, wearing, wearing uh, leather uh, jackets. What do we expect to hear uh, on Wednesday and again on Thursday? And again, uh, another uh, illustrious surface warrior that you uh, work for. Uh, was Rick Hunt, uh, who's now the president of the Surface Navy Association, obviously Fink Contieri, uh, uh, Marinette Marine, uh, Marine's uh, president. But talk to us about Wednesday and Thursday. Yeah, I mean, Wednesday tends to be a um, kind of a people day. So you'll, um, you, you know, you'll, you'll see the different briefings uh, as they talk about people. Um, you know, Admiral Darrell uh, Cottle, uh, the new um, Fleet Forces Commander speaks. Uh, we'll hear from Mike Gallagher and uh, Elaine Loria. Uh, the, the two uh, representatives will kind of present the uh, view from Capitol Hill. Uh, both members have been staunch supporters, but also critics uh, of the Navy uh, leadership for maybe not moving as quickly and not being as articulate about their vision as they uh, you know, perhaps could be. Um, they present a very nice yin and yang. Um, you, you know, both sides of the aisle are represented. Uh, and, um, you know, they, they both come from districts that have um, strong Navy ties. Uh, Gallagher from uh, Wisconsin, where uh, Fink and Terry is based uh, in the United States. And uh, Luria, obviously, from the 2nd District in Virginia, where the world's largest naval base and quite a bit of shipbuilding is uh, in its own right. So, That'll be a great uh, event. And then on Thursday, the event that I'm particularly interested in is the discussion on the Surface Navy Digital Infrastructure and Artificial Intelligence session. That's a bit of right. a mouthful and it's kind of nerdy, um, but I want to see how serious they are um, because these uh, panels tend to devolve into, you know, bumper stickers and uh, right. Silicon Valley type speech speak. Uh, and I think we're going to be able to tell pretty quickly how far the surface Navy has gotten um, with uh, their digital approach and how serious they are about using AI. So uh, that that's one you normally don't learn a ton, you, you know, uh, from these events, they, they tend to reinforce what you kind of already felt this one. I'm looking forward to learning. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, you, uh, you, you nailed it in terms of uh, there's a political yin and yang there, but Elaine Lurie, obviously a Naval Academy graduate, uh, spent uh, her career retiring as a commander uh, from the United States Navy as a, as a nuclear qualified surface officer. Uh, and uh, in the case of, uh, I, always, I always like to joke, Mike, uh, bear with me on this, uh, Dr. Gallagher, uh, who was uh, a combat uh, Marine, uh, and then ob obviously uh, somebody uh, who's very, very passionate uh, about all matters, uh, national security, not just uh, not just with this with the sea services. Um, what are going to be the subordinate stories? Right, I mean, the greatest thing about uh, Surface Navy Association, Navy League, uh, AFA, AUSA, right? Any of these big shows is an opportunity to just reconnect with with folks on the show floor. Uh, you know, side conversations. What are what are the sort of uh, you know, A, what is the feedback you're getting from the navalists you hang out with about what they want to hear? Uh, and what are some of the things that you think you'll be picking up from the deck plates uh, from folks on, on, on this? And obviously, we're going to have an opportunity. Uh, either you or Cavus are going to join us on a daily basis to give us kind of a quick update uh, or a feed. Uh, and we've got a couple of other folks who are going to be joining us. Uh, you know, Brian Clark, uh, you know, Mark Montgomery and the like will be joining us over the course of the week as well. But sort of give, give us a sense on what you what folks are telling you going into this and they want to hear. And what do you expect to hear? when you convene and, you know, connect again with your buddies on the floor? Um, I don't expect to hear much, Vago. I, I really don't. And th this is the difficulty at the timing of the um, Surface Navy Association uh, conference. It, it comes in January prior to the budget being put out. Um, so there's not a lot of new that's actually revealed. Um, it tends to be more of a cheerleading session. So I think we'll get some of that. I think the biggest, you know, sort of subplot that will uh, be you will carry on throughout the the three days is the you know COVID nineteen in the Washington D.C. area. The fact that they're having this conference, given um, the Pentagon's guidance on um, the need to really, really be careful, uh, given the fact that the DMV is a hotspot with uh, COVID nineteen. You know, the fact that this is even happening is a little bit of a, a head scratcher. Um, so I, I think if they're able to put this thing on, people are able to listen to Navy leadership. Too many people don't get sick. Uh, I think it's a win. My fear is, is that this becomes a, a mini uh, super spreader event. I don't know if you can say mini and super in the same sentence, but I did. <laughs> um, but, you know, that that's really my, my concern. Um, but I think, you know, I, I, I I think that there was a feeling among Navy leadership and a feeling among the surface Navy association leadership that a lot of time and money had been invested and in that if the proper uh, precautions are taken, that they can limit uh, the vulnerability of the attendees. And, and so uh, they're, they're going to move forward with it. So I, I think that the COVID subplot is going to be what a lot of people are talking about in addition to kind of what is um, a bit of a, a cheer session for the surface Navy. Um, let me ask, uh, put it this way and get your take in about uh, 30 seconds or less. What does everybody hope that they hear, right? Uh, when, when you're talking to the navalist crowd, what is it that they want to hear as opposed to what is it you fear you're not going to hear? Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I mean, that's a good point. Um, 
I think what they want to hear is there's a plan to get to a plan for the Navy. And what do I mean by that? That the the Navy leadership, both at the Pentagon level and at the TICOM level, have a way to get to a serious uh, plan that allows the Navy to be part of the joint force in competing with China and Russia. Um, The Navy, and I would say particularly the surface Navy, has lagged behind um, the other communities and the other parts of the joint force in really articulating how they want to get to where they need to be. We really don't have a strong uh, force structure assessment in terms of how many ships manned, unmanned. Um, You know, we've kind of backed away from that. Um, So I think some semblance of, hey, they're thinking about it in a logical way and that they're on the the path to get to what that plan would be. I mean, that's a pretty low bar, but I think that that's what people are looking for. Chris, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Uh, Break a leg. Uh, Looking forward to seeing you uh, over there and having you back on the program. Thanks again. Thank you, Vago. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.